and you're in for a hell of a ride, let me just tell you that. And I want to thank my friends that are sitting there that were late, as usual, because they just can't get their act together, you know. Just because we get sober doesn't mean like we get really good, you know. Anyway, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, um, and but I'm not going to do what a, what a lot of people do um, as speakers. About five years ago, I was looking up the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I couldn't figure out what they were. And it talks about living by the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to change my pitch, and I'm going to incorporate the principles with the steps, and so we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about that tonight. Um, I'm going to tell you how I qualify. My sobriety date is September 4th, 1987. Um, I have never taken a drink since my very first meeting. Uh, relapse is not a part of my story and does not have to be a part of anyone's, if you choose not to. Um, and I say that because we get so much. I heard somewhere in, in the, just a little while ago about relapse is part of recovery, and I was like stunned. And, but that's not true. Um, I came here when I was 35. Don't try to do the math, you'll miss my next pitch. Yes, I'm 62 years old and I'm proud of it. I'm glad I'm still here. Um, I will tell you about my first remembrance of my first drink. I was 14 years old. I was living in Texas. I was not born in Texas. I'm a native Northern Californian. Um, but we were transplanted to Texas, thus the funny accent. And, um, I, you could, back then, you could drive at 14. So I had my mother's Buick red convertible that we had driven off the showroom floor. What a, I mean, I'm a mother. There is no way I would have ever given my 14-year-old a red convertible to go out partying. I mean, she knew it was a party. What an idiot. But anyway, so, um, you know, I was, I was always chubby. Food was my first drug of choice. If I know this is AA, but you know, I love to eat. I was just a pig. And so I was always about 15 or 20 pounds heavier. And so I, that night, um, we were dressing up for this party with these cowboys. I don't know why I dressed up for cowboys, but I did. And I put on this really intense girdle. Now they t call them Spanx now. But let me tell you, Spanx are about three, well, anyway, the girdle was like three inches thicker than Spanx, and it like sucked you in and like you really looked like 20 pounds thinner, and, but there was no way it was going to go anywhere, and so it stays on, and so um, I go to this party, and I'm in this, I can see it today, just like it was yesterday, this red polyester suit, it was a blazer and a short skirt, and I had a, we called them pumps back then, heels on and stockings, because they had those little clip things, and you clip those, remember guys? I remember some of you, some of you know trying to take those things off. I know you know what I'm talking about. You youngsters don't, but some of you know. Pantyhose had not been invented yet. 
God, that's bad. I can't believe that. Anyway, I can't believe I'm that old. Anyway, so um, so I'm at this party and I go, what are we drinking? And they go, Everclear. And uh, I go, what's Everclear? And they go, uh, it's really powerful, Mary. And for those of you that don't know, it's like a hundred million proof. It makes you, it, it's, it's like grain alcohol. It can make you blind. I mean, it's very dangerous. And so I had this jelly glass and I filled it up and they go, oh, no, 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 Mary, you don't want to do that. Well, you don't say no to an alcoholic. You just don't say no. And I went, watch me. So I put a splash of that punch stuff they had with it and I gulped the whole thing down. And within 10 minutes, I'm like this. I mean, you, you know the feeling. You know when everything is buzzing and you know you're feeling slightly ill and you know you just can't stand up anymore. And that was what happened. And so I went into the bedroom and I laid down and the lights were out and I was like going like this and going, oh, please let this pass. This is horrible. And the whole party was going, I missed the whole damn thing. And, um, Pretty soon, the cowboy came in, and uh, you know what he thought. And so he thought he was going to get lucky. And so he came in, and he was, um, he hit that darn girdle, and he huffed, and he puffed, and <laughs> he couldn't get it down. And, uh, and I, the only thing I remember him saying is, oh my God, this is too much trouble. <laughs> and he walked out. And I want to just want to, I mean, it's funny now. I think it's hilarious. I'm really grateful for that girdle all these years later. But I'll tell you what, not much changed with my drinking. And I drank for the next 21 years. And it was pretty similar. Get drunk, get naked, a lot of times. Do things I didn't want to do. Be what I didn't want to be. Pass out. I mean, it was... It, you know, I, it, that's just the way it was. Um, alcohol took me to places I didn't want to go, I didn't mean to go. I was a nice girl from a n really beautiful family. And, uh, and alcohol changed all that for me. It changed all that. It made me someone I didn't want to be. But here's the deal. Because I loved alcohol so much, I loved the way it made me feel and it was all about the way it made me feel. I became a pig for alcohol, just like Patty O talks about. I was a pig. I was a pig not only for alcohol, I was a pig for everything. If it felt good, I did it. If it felt really good, I did it over and over and over again. It, that's just the way it was for me. And I lived by Mary's rules. There were no rules for me. You know, everything was my rules. And so I'm going to talk about how I've changed. I'm going to incorporate a little bit of my story into this. But we're going to talk about the steps. And the first step, the principle is honesty. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So after many years of denial, we now have to begin with one simple admission that I was powerless over alcohol. I don't know about you, but I didn't know I wasn't powerless over alcohol until my mother had gone into recovery and I started getting some inklings. I was um, in my 30s, I had a child and I was married and I started getting some inklings that I was drinking a little too much. Now I want to tell you my husband did not to, to this day 
did not think I was an alcoholic because my worst drinking was when he went to bed. And then I would drink and then I'd get that thing we call phonitis and call everybody up and, oh my God, my life is terrible. I hate my life. I hate myself. And then they'd call me the next day and say, how, how are you? And I'd go, who is this? And what did I say? That kind of and that was it. And so he didn't really know how bad my drinking was because I was a very control drinker for a lot of years, especially in his business. He he was in the hospital business and he raised money for hospitals. And so we had to go we had a very social social life. And you know, I would drink a drink and drink clip soda and drink a drink and just go, oh please can I just maintain until I can get home and then I can just chug it and drink like I want to. Because don't you know I had to be a lady. But I had to admit that I was powerless over something. So I called up my mother that day. I was questioning it. And I said, Mom, I said, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And she had just got, she had been to the Betty once. And, and she said, well, she said, there's a line in the book that says try to quit drinking for a year. And I screamed bloody murder, a year? Are you kidding me? A year? I lasted three days. And, uh, and I was drinking wine out of a box. And I'll never forget it. And I remember taking, um, pulling the guts out of the box and wanting to get all of it. So I snipped the bottom and I was squeezing, squeezing it like this, going like this, getting every last drop I could. And I saw my, my um, image in the stove and I went, you're in trouble. But that didn't stop me. That didn't stop me. And it was another three or four years before before I came. And, and the, how I got here is nothing short of a miracle. But when I got here, I was done. And I was desperate. And, um, and I didn't know anything about alcoholism. And I didn't know that my life was horrible because of my drinking. I thought it was him and you and they and them. And so when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was the first step, um, my sponsor sat, sat me down and we went through these steps and, and I realized how unmanageable my life was and how power, powerless I was over alcohol, that I could not stop on my own. There was no way. And by the way, I didn't go to treatment. Um, I, didn't, I didn't walk into treatment and I should have been. I should have been. I was in a fog for a long time. I was very, very, very sick. Um, we talked about Ashland earlier, and um, I was one of the founders of Ashland. Well, not what I was one of the first people that helped. I was actually the money raiser, and um, and I love Ashland so much because had there been a place like that, I swear those girls come out at least six months advanced compared to where I was. But anyway. So <clears throat> honesty it is the uh, principle for that first step, and it was probably the first, first time I ever got really honest. I'm a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I will tell you a story. I will tell you all kinds of stories to make myself feel good. Not because I want to impress you to make myself feel good, because don't you know I want to be somebody? Don't you know who I am? Because I have this huge ego with this low self-esteem, and it is really hard being me. So it was really hard for me to do that, to get honest, but I did. And then in step two, we get to hope. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This is like a mirror image of the opposite of step one. 
because we admit that alcohol is our higher power and our lives are unmanageable and then in step two we find a different higher power who will restore us to sanity well first you have to understand what insanity is irrational thinking I had irrational thinking all the time I remember I was at a bar one time I was working for the YMCA and I had all these counselors and we I took them underage drinking to a place that served uh, $1 Long Island iced teas. What a, what a haven for an alcoholic, $1 Long Island iced teas. I had an MGB at the time, which those of you that don't know is a little two-seater, littlest little dinky car. I had eight people in there by the end of the night. And we were driving on the railroad tracks and I thought it was a road. And the only reason that car didn't break down is because the axle perfectly fit on the railroad tracks. And I was able to keep it right on there. And when I got off the railroad tracks, they all looked at me and they were all hanging out of the car and they go, we're on the railroad tracks, Mary. And I go, no kidding. And those are the kinds of things I did. And uh, put everybody's life in jeopardy, you know. And that was insanity. I could, I could tell you a million other things that I did that was insane, but I'm sure you all have your stories and we all know how to get drunk. We all know how to do that. I want to talk about how we recover here, how we get better and we get well, because we are not bad people trying to get good here. We are sick people trying to get well, and the answer is here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm so blessed to have found it. So it leads us to step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. And the principle of that is faith. And I wear that on my arm. And I, I almost wear this every day. Because I want to tell you about faith. I want to tell you about my faith. When I first came here, the word G-O-D was just a complete turnoff to me. It was a really difficult word for me. I'd been raised in a church that I thought they were a bunch of phonies. They didn't walk like they talk. And I thought it was just... You know, I, I just, I ridiculed it. And I, um, I ridiculed anybody that had that kind of faith because basically I thought it wasn't cool. And I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be cool so bad because I felt so bad about myself. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor, when we went over this step, and said to me, don't worry about this, it will come. So if you're brand new, if you're in your first few years, and the God thing is, is very difficult for you like it was for me, I want you not to worry about that. <clears throat> My sponsor said to me, do you believe that I have faith? And I knew that woman had faith. That woman lived in a trailer in Bell Gardens, California. In a tra I'm not talking about a mobile home. I'm talking about a trailer. And she smoked cigarettes, and she had raised six kids, and she was a uh, talk like this. Shut up, Mary. Just go work step. <laughs> you know, one time I called her up, I said, my husband thinks I'm being brainwashed. She goes, your brain needs washing. Click. I mean, that is the kind of sponsor I had. And, and this woman was so flippin' happy. And, I, and Oh, and on top of that, she wore polyester when polyester wasn't the thing to do. So you can imagine how I ended up with a sponsor like that. It just goes kind of against against the grain, but she was the perfect sponsor for me because I was a liar, a cheat, and a manipulator. 
and um, and I knew exactly how to do that, and I couldn't do that with her. She saw right through me, right through me. She cut to the chase, and, and, and I knew one thing about her. I knew she had faith, and I knew she had happiness, and I knew she was really filled with joy, really filled with joy. And I thought that was amazing, because I thought joy came when you have all the right stuff, you know, when you get the right car, the right guy, the right house, the right, I didn't want a job, I was going to say the right job, but I didn't want to work. I'm sorry guys, but I really thought that's what you were for, and, so, and that was your job, was to take care of me and let me sit home and do whatever I wanted to do. I don't feel that way anymore, so don't get a resentment against me, but that is exactly the way I thought. And, um, and so that, that was, that was my, my thinking was so messed up. But I came to, came year, you know, I came to have faith. I, it grew, it grew. So you don't have to worry about having it all at once. This is a step that will, that you work continuously, that um, this is a, a principle that, that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I'll tell you a little bit about what happened where my faith was tested. Um, I was four and a half years sober. We, had, we were able to adopt a little boy. I had gone through artificial insemination. My, we couldn't have children. And we had this beautiful child that God had blessed us with. I didn't know it was God then. Um, I did later. <clears throat> but I was four and a half years sober and we're living in Downey and we're going I'm going to meetings and I'm sponsoring people and I get this call from the medical clinic where we had gone for, for the fertility and they said, the donor has come down with AIDS, you need to come in and be tested. And I went, oh, well what are my chances of having that? I don't know, we've never heard of anybody getting it this way, but we just, the CDC says we just have to have you come in and get tested. So we went in and got tested and it was inconclusive. And my husband was working down at South Coast Medical Center at the time we were still living in Downey and he was commuting. And the guy, the lab guy came in and he was talking to my husband and he said, there's no inconclusive AIDS test. And my husband called me and he said, I think we need to be worried. And I said, I'm not worried. I was a little shaken up, but I wasn't worried. And, um, my sponsor made me get a job at two, three years sober. So I'm a school teacher now. And I'm teaching school, best thing I ever did, was able to hand, hand my husband $10,000 my first year teaching. Best thing I ever did for my self-esteem. And, um, and so we get this call from the clinic and it's inconclusive and then they call me back another two weeks later and they said, you've got it. And there were two of us that got it out of 26. And, um, and so I, the doctor said, I said, well, what do I do now? And the doctor said, I don't know. Well, you know, they don't, it's against the law to tell people over the phone now. And so, um, and for him to say, I don't know. So I want to tell you, I got off that phone and I was like, my first thought was of God at four and a half years sober. Now I want to tell you, I am 27 years sober. It took me 20 years to wake up and have my first thought be of God. 
But that day, I will never forget that day. I will never forget where I was standing. I will never forget what I felt like. I will never forget that I said, that God said to me, there's a reason you have this and you're going to do something with this. And I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I knew that intuitively. And uh, they gave me a year to live. And uh, I did what all good women do. I went out shopping. <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna go out in a flame of glory looking fine, let me tell you. And I ran up all those darn credit cards and I tr we traveled and I flippin' didn't die. <laughs> now what do I do? So I had to rip up all those credit cards and I had to face the fact that, you know what? I might live. And I might live a very long time. Um, it's been 30 years. This year marks 30 years that I've lived with full-blown AIDS diagnosis. And uh, I know why I'm living. Because I have purpose and God isn't done with me and I haven't done what I need to do here. And I still need to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So my faith has been tested over and over again. I'll tell you more stories about that as we go by. But I just want to let you know that if you don't have any faith at all right now tonight as you're sitting there looking at me and you're going, what is she talking about? Just borrow mine because mine is big enough for the whole room. So that takes us to step four, which is courage. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Just like you, when you make an inventory of a store, what, what is in there? What is, what is in the store? I had to look at myself and I had to see what my assets were and what my liabilities were. And I want to tell you that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage for me. Um, I am a, I am a, a non-courageous person. I'm a, a wimp. Just basically, I'm a wimp. And I don't want to look at who I had become. And when I did this step, I had worked on it for about three months. And my sponsor, Eileen, we called her the woman, and we all hung out together. We had this group of us that hung out together. We called her the woman, and we were all standing one day together. And, and they said, um, Mary has something to tell you. And, and the woman looks at me, and she goes, what? And she said, I said, well, I've been working on my four step a really long time. And she said, how long? I said, three months. She goes, and she's kind of like I am now. I don't remember things. And she sponsored a whole bunch of people so she couldn't keep track, you know? So it was really easy, you know, to get lost in that. But all my sobriety sisters would tell on each other. And so they, so they told on me because they knew that I was lagging. And so she gave me a week to get it done. And, um, and it was really painful. And, and for those of you that have worked the steps in here, you know what it's like to do that very first fourth step. It's not easy. It's not easy. And it takes courage. And that's what all, all these steps are about. When you, when you get through them, what happens to us? We are transformed. And so um, that principle I still live by because it still takes courage for me today. It takes courage for me to tell my story. It takes courage for me to be a woman of dignity and grace. It takes courage for me to stand up for what I believe in that, and stand tall for that. And I learned all of that here. I was such a wishy-washy woman when I got here. It was like 
My husband is not an alcoholic. I'd look at him getting up and going to work every morning. I'd go, how does he do that? He goes to work even when he's sick. He loves his job. And I was like forever having the debate in my head. Do I call him sick today? Do I not call him sick today? Do I stay home today? Do I not stay home today? I never, I never wanted to do any of that. And, um, and you people taught me how to do that. I was always amazed at people that stood up for what they believed in. Which takes us to the next principle, which is integrity. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another, another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. This is probably one of the most difficult steps to face. Um, but it is one of the greatest opportunities for growth. Because when we look at ourselves and we share it with another human being, we're not only naked and like naked in front of them, we're naked in front of God too. And we just lay it out there. This is who I am and this is who I have become and this is what I've done. And today, you know, we do a, a four, I do a resentment inventory, a moral inventory, and a sexual inventory, and a fear inventory. And, um, and so when I had done all those inventories and then, and then I got quiet, um, it was the most, it was a really amazing feeling because there were things in that inventory that I was not going to tell another living soul, ever. It was, I was going to go to my grave with it. And today I tell it from the podium. I can tell you things that I did that I am not proud of in sobriety. I will share this with you. And it took me a long time to share this from the podium. At 16 years sober, um, my husband and I had invested our money very well. And, um, and he, um, we had the, all our investments intact. And uh, we gave our money to a, three guys that started a company and um, and it was all embezzled and and I started shoplifting at 16 years of sobriety and I wasn't shoplifting for me I was shoplifting to give gifts to people and um, I called up my sponsor and I said what am I doing I said I have to tell you what I'm doing I said, at 16 years of sobriety, I am in AA, I'm talking to people about living with integrity, and I'm stealing, and I'm hating myself for it. And she said, well, first of all, you've got to make amends for it. Somehow you have to make amends for it, and we work that out. And she said, second of all, you need to go find out why you're doing this. And I spent a year in therapy, and I was so ashamed because I felt like such a phony. But today I can tell you that we don't get perfect here. We are not saints. And, um, and I'm able to share from the podium because maybe that will help somebody. And I went to therapy over it and I rea realized that it was all about not having enough and I felt so deprived when we lost all our money. We had to go on food stamps and we had, oh, it, was, it has been like a nightmare for about 10 years almost. And, um, but I'm here. And I'm okay, and I've walked through that. And so I like to share those things that are ugly, that are not pretty, and that I'm not proud of. But I am not that woman today. Now I'll tell you, 
I'm very careful sometimes when I go into a store and I take just my wallet because I never can tell when that might kick in because that is the kind of person I am. It could happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't want it to happen, but I'm very, very careful. Just like I'm very careful about how much I'm around booze, you know, because I have a husband who drinks and we go to bars and we go out to dinner and we go to drinking parties and I'm still very, very careful. So that leaves us to step six, which is the principle is called willingness. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Willingness comes in, I think, as a principle of Alcoholics Anonymous in so many ways, not just with this step. I look at character defects as that that mole game at Chuck E. Cheese where the mole pops up and you go, bam, get, got that one down, and another one pops up over here and goes, bam, got that one down. And at any given time, I can feel like, you know, I've, I've got that one conquered and then it'll come back up. And I always thought that, you know, it was going to be like a magic wand and God was going to remove them all and I was going to be this wonderful, perfect woman. I really had that kind of idea when I was new. And the truth of the matter is, is we're never going to be perfect. I, there's a fabulous book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. I recommend it. I will never be perfect and who would want to be? Because then I would, I would not be having a human experience. But what it, what it allows me to be willing is allows me to be willing to wake up every day, to look at that, to pray for the willingness for the character defects that stand in the way of my usefulness to God and man. And that's what I talk about every morning when I wake up and my first thought is God. I talk about that. Please take away that selfishness, that character defect that'll say, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go on a 12-step call. I don't, want to, I don't want to talk to that person today. Oh my God, she's been in and out 20 times. I don't want to talk about it again to her or him or it or, you know. That really doesn't happen very often because I don't screen my calls and I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just talking about that little tiny part of me that could stand in the way of me doing God's work. And so I have to be willing. I have to be willing to go to any lengths. I will tell you this, that being desperate and being willing are two characteristics that I'm really glad I had. In the very beginning, my sponsor would tell me to do something. I did it. There was no question. I didn't fight with my sponsor. I, didn't, I, I asked why a lot, and she told me I had to delete the need to know why, because mm -hmm. knowing why doesn't answer the doesn't make a difference we think if we know why we'll figure it out and then we can do it differently well if if you keep stealing and I knew why I was stealing even though she sent me to therapy it didn't make me stop stealing that didn't make me stop stealing just because I knew why I did it what made me stop stealing is I had to become a hero in my own life and I had to be a woman of integrity and I had to know it was a choice but understanding all that why stuff that the therapist told me didn't make a difference. So I had to delete the need to know why. So I had to become willing to do these steps. I had to become willing to work at it. And it is work. There is work to be done here until you live it. 
and eventually the work is done and you live it. And eventually you always learn something every single day that I didn't know. Every day there's a, there's a different, there's a depth to my life. Um, there's things that I didn't know that, that are taught to me. There's a, a beauty and a joy in seeing things that, I, that were unseeable, if that makes sense to you. Um, being aware, we call it enlightened or aware, I learned from everybody. You know, one of the things that I, I, want, I want to share with you is I think sometimes we put so much on this time thing. I have learned more from the girls at Ashland in all, I, I go there twice a week and volunteer there twice a week just because they give me so much. My sponsees give me so much. My friends give me so much. I'm not that altruistic unselfish. I do it because it feels good. And I hope you will find that out too. So it leads us so so it leads us to step seven, which is humility. I stumble on that word. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Asking that our flaws be removed. The spiritual focus of this step is humility. Some people will tell you the definition of humility is remaining teachable. Um, some, some people will tell you the definition of humility is thinking less of ourselves and more of others. I don't know how humble I am. I really don't know if, if people would describe me as, as having humility. I don't know. But I will tell you this, that every single day of my life, I am giving to other people. Um, every single day of my life, I am working with others. There isn't a day that goes by that I have not done work with other people and tried to help them to recover. Whether it's talking about their problems or working on a step or meeting with them for coffee, or meeting them at a meeting, or taking them to a meeting, or whatever. There's never a day that goes by that I don't have that, because I'm in a meeting every day, still. And, um, and sometimes too. We were all at a meeting, a bunch of us, um, this morning. We were at an 11-step meeting, and then we went to the movies, and then I had to come home and regroup. And, and I can't be gone all day because there are people that call me and I had to go home and I had seven phone calls that I had to return. And, uh, and I love that. I love that's what my purpose is and that's what my life is about now. And I love that. Um, which leads us to step eight, which is brotherly love. We made a list of all persons we had harmed, all people that we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Um, what secured this step is only about making the list and so you take that list and you go to your sponsor and you make sure that you're not doing this alone and that you share this with your sponsor and you share each of them with your sponsor because I want to tell you I was responsible for everything I was an I'm sorry person 
men will know this, that women like closure. How many of you have had a fight and the and you say, I'm done, sweet this is my husband used to say this to me. I'm done, sweetheart. I'm over. I'm done. Please stop. I've done. It's stop. And I'll go out of the room. Well, just one more thing. Let me just tell you one more thing. I mean, that is the it took me years before I could end a discussion and stop. I, I just couldn't do it. I had to wrap it up with a bow. And um, so I was sorry for everything because I thought saying I'm sorry solved it all. And if I could say I'm sorry, then I felt better. So I had a whole bunch of amends that I did not owe on that list. And I'm really, really grateful that I had a sponsor that went through them with me because there were some people I had not harmed, but I just wanted to make that amends because see, one more time, there I was, that selfish woman that was thinking of herself because it's all about me and how I feel. And don't you know, I wanted to feel better. Which leads us to step nine, which is making direct amends to people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And this is called justice. And this is justice for them and for us. And notice that that step says make direct amends. Make direct amends. We do not call them up. We do not send letters. We do not email them. We do not text them our amends. There's a reason we make direct amends. It is so that we can use that word humble. And we can humbly go before somebody and tell them we, our truth. I don't even say I'm sorry anymore when I make a direct amends. I say I regret. Because I think I'm sorry is used so cheaply. So I say I regret for the times that I was not a good blank. Mother, sister, daughter, friend, wife, whatever. That is what I say. It blankets everything. I do not tell the people I sponsor to go and say you're sorry for puking on the carpet. Because then they're going to say, well, what about this? And what about this? And then you're going to ruin the entire thing. The other thing that I hear a lot of people say is, how can I make this right? Please don't say that when you're making an amends. Please don't say, how can I make this right? Can you imagine going and saying, well, I owe you $1,500. How can I make this right? Okay, well, let's up it to, let's double it since it's been 10 years. And now you can owe me $3,000. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. And then you get into an argument about that. So please don't say, how can I make this right? Because the amends is the amends. Amend the Constitution. Remember what amend the Constitution is? It's changing the Constitution. The amends is about changing our behavior, regretting what we did, and taking full responsibility for it, which is the justice that we get. Because once we do that, once we're there at step nine, halfway through, the promises will start to come true for us at halfway through the ninth step. It's not halfway through the twelfth step, it's halfway through the ninth step. And you will start to reap the benefit of those promises. I had to fly a lot of places to make amends. Now, I, I want to let you know that there are certain times when a letter or a phone call is okay. 
and I had to write a letter to my ex-husband. He had been married three times after me, and um, it was his wife was really upset that I wanted to contact him because he had had children with all the other women. He had not had children with me. I was married very young at 19. I fell in love with his hair. <laughs> and he uh, worked for Xerox and he made like $8,000 in one month in 1972. That was a lot. And he found this stuff, this white, white snow stuff. And, uh, and we had a crazy life a crazy life and I was drinking and I was not a very good wife and he was a he was a worse husband and uh, <laughs> he was just chasing everything I had a, I had a miscarriage and and while I was having a DNC he was out bonking some chick he told me that later and I was going wow you were really bad anyway um, he did not want to, she, the wife did not want me to see him. And so I honored that. And eventually I, I was able to see him. And it was years, years later, because I stayed really good friends with his sister. And he came over and, oh my gosh, that was such, a, such an amazing thing. He said to me, he said, your drinking was never bad in our relationship. He said, we got married too young, Mary. And I felt so good about that, but I know that I was not the woman I wanted to be in that relationship. So it was all cleaned up, and I felt really good about it. So I flew a lot of places um, to do my amends. It took a lot of money. I had to save for it. And, I, and my sponsor said, you're not allowed to let your husband pay for it. And that is why she made me go to work at the two and a half years sober. And I was really mad. Um, but I'm really, really grateful that I did that. Really grateful. I'm really grateful for sponsorship. So now we're at step 10. And step 10, the principle is perseverance. Just so you know, the notes that I have here are just the principles and the steps. Because I'm getting, we just saw the movie Alice today. And if you don't know, it's about a woman who gets, um, Alzheimer's early and I've just been tested for that and the memory is getting a little less and less so I have to have these notes so that's what that's all about so perseverance is step 10 continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it so it says where were we afraid I'm, I'm, I hope I can get this where were we resentful where were we dishonest and where were we selfish and this is how we learn from youngsters in the program. About, I guess it's been four years now, I was sponsoring this really young woman. She was about 23 at the time. She's gonna take five years this year. And she was 23 at the time, and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed with my boyfriend. And I said, what's he doing? She goes, he's writing his inventory. And I go, writing his 10th step? She goes, yeah. She goes, the four things. And I went, writing that out? What a concept. So I've been writing that 10th step out ever since. And I learned that from him. And what a difference that has made. Because you'd think that I would have a day where none of that would occur. You would think that there would be one day where all of those were blank. And I have yet to have that day. 
I can always dig something up where I was afraid. I may not admit it, or I may not be living in it, but deep down within, I've been afraid, or I've been dishonest with myself, or something. But I've never had a blank slate. And I think that is so great that we get to do that, and that God gives us another day, we get another day to try to get it better. Not right, I don't like to talk about right or wrong. I don't, I don't like black or white anymore. I love gray. I didn't like, used to like that. I was always not like that. It was either, you know, I was a right fighter for a long time, but now I like the gray. I like the fact that I can do it better and uh, that I get another chance and I wake up every day with another chance to be a better Mary. By the way, today I'm the best Mary I've ever been, and tomorrow I'll be the best Mary I've ever been too, because I keep learning. I keep learning. I keep persevering. I'm really grateful that I'm diligent, and that I'm vigilant, and that I continue to do this thing. It's the greatest gift I've ever been given. It's, it's I can't even begin to tell you how, if you stay here, living this kind of life with directions from those first 164 pages. They give you explicit directions, which leads me to the next step, which is spirituality, which is step 11, which is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, which tells us by this time, we're gonna have some relationship with God, okay? It took me 20 years of prayer and meditation before I woke up every morning and when my eyes open, my first thought is of God. Now, I don't get a cup of coffee. Sometimes I have to go to the bathroom. I was taught you're in self-will, already if you're getting a cup of coffee without talking to God. So I lay there and I do 45 minutes almost every, every morning. Um, it took me a long time to get to 45 minutes. When I was new, I was just like any other newcomer. Couldn't, couldn't shut them up. I call them the bitches in the attic. I had about 19 of them. They were all quacking at one time. Don't tell normal people which, that you have those. <laughs> Don't make that mistake. One time I said, do you have those people in your head? I was sitting at a flipping PTA luncheon. <laughs> I never went to the PTA again. I probably wasn't welcome. And, and I said, do you guys have that talking in your head with those ladies up there? They all looked at me like I was crazy. And then when my story broke, by the way, my story broke about the AIDS thing. It was all over the front page of the paper. And, um, and so that everybody knew because we, I ended up doing a lot of talk shows. By the way, I want to tell you my whole goal in life, this is how superficial, shallow, and petty I was. I wanted to be on Dynasty. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on Dynasty. I wanted to work. Oh, God, that was just like, I deserve that life. I lived in fantasy, if any of you want to talk about 
fantasy, you can talk to me. I lived in fantasy. I knew I was born of the wrong family. I knew I was born to royalty and they screwed up the babies. And, and I mean, this is how I lived in my head. I was so insane. And so when, when my story broke about the AIDS thing, I got to go on a lot of talk shows and I got to meet a lot of incredible people. And I knew that my sole purpose was to help people with this disease and make the face of AIDS look different because this was in the era when everybody was dying because I got it in 1984. And so I just knew. I don't know how I knew, but I just knew that I was going to touch people somehow. I didn't know how, but I did. And um, it was a beautiful time in my life. And it's really fun to go on those shows. It was really fun. It was really heady stuff. It was really heady. I really, really deep down thought I was going to be discovered, but I wasn't. <laughs> so back to spirituality. Um, you know, that we go to an 11-step meeting, a bunch of us, that where we talk about the 11th step, and everybody learns at a different pace with this 11th step, and there's all different kinds of gods, and there's all different kinds of meditation, and you got to find what is right for you. Um, the only thing that I, I, I like to tell my opinion, if you haven't noticed that about me, and I will tell you this. This is something that I question, though. I have heard people say, they drive and meditate at the same time. Now, I really want to know your license plate number if you're doing that, because I do not want to be near you. Maybe it's a different form of meditation that they do while they're driving, but um, I, I don't meditate while I drive. And um, I meditate for 45 minutes every morning and every afternoon. And it tells us upon awakening what to do. It tells us at the end of our day what to do. They wrote this book very explicitly. It tells us in the middle of the day, you know, if, if something happens and we're, we don't know what to do, it tells us to pause. It tells us exactly what to do. And it tells us how to do this step. And then if you become a seeker like me, because I really believe I'm a seeker, then you can go off and you can study all kinds of other things that will help you with this step, which is what I've done. And there's a lot of people in this room that have done that. And I have found this whole spiritual life that I made fun of for so many years, made fun of it. And now I live it because everything is spiritual to me, everything. And I'm very aware of it. And I see it all the time, all the time. And I love it with the, when the new girls are at Ashland and we're sitting there talking and they go, oh, Mary, I saw God shot, I had God shot yesterday. And they tell me the story and something, they are seeing a piece of the puzzle. Because see, my life is just this little tiny thing, but I don't know the whole thing. I don't know why we lost all our I don't know why that is, but I know I have something to learn from it, and I've learned a whole lot. I've stayed married to the, that man for 33 years, and I will tell you this, we are so in love, and we care for each other so gently and so beautifully, and he allows me to do whatever I want, and I let him be and do whatever he wants. 
And we were never like that when we had all that stuff. And maybe that was the lesson. I don't know if it was. I don't know. But I'd love to be able to see the goodness in, in every growth spurt. And, uh, and that's what 11th Step has taught me. Um, I hope you can, you can find that eventually. Just remember, it's a process. It's a muscle that has to be exercised exactly like a muscle when you go um, to the gym, which I don't do because I've never understood people who like the gym. So, <laughs> but I do know about that muscle. And that leads us to step 12 which is service, having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. I love this, carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. It doesn't say that we have the divine right to all this. Everybody gets to hear this message when they come in contact with me because that's the way I live. I live my life as best I can with these steps. I am service to my community. I am service to my family. I am service to my AA family. There was a guy on Super Soul Sunday this morning who's written a book, most of you know who Paul Williams is. And um, if you don't know him, he wrote the Kermit the Frog song, the Rainbow Song. And he was talking about how everybody should have this program. I just broke his anonymity. I'm so sorry. Um, <clears throat> but he broke it on TV this morning. And so um, he wrote this book on how everybody in the world should have this program. What an incredible place this would be if we could all practice this. And um, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen homes broken. I've seen people, families put back together again. I've seen amazing things happen because of carrying the message and letting you know that we can recover from a seemingly hopeless, helpless disease. I am not the same woman I walked into the doors 27 years ago. I have an incredible AA family. Some of them are sitting here with incredible, deep, rich relationships. I have an incredible family and I have incredible friends outside of AA because I surround myself with people of like-mindedness. I don't have a, I, I don't, I don't surround myself with people that don't, are not on that walk um, unless they need my help. Um, there's not anything I wouldn't do for Alcoholics Anonymous. I would never say no to a request unless I was sick. That doesn't mean you can't say no. I want to make that really clear. There are times when people have to say no. But I have never said no where I could go because I can never repay. I can never pay back what was so freely given to me. I hope you find just a piece of what I found here. Thank you very much.